If you want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude, this morning in class, we're talking about the fear of man, specifically the fear of being exposed. So I'm doing something right now that I'm usually afraid of being exposed, and that is I don't have it turned to Jude yet. Because my fear is, what if I start turning there and I can't find it? And everyone's watching me, and I've been to seminary, and I don't even know where 2 Samuel is. So, this one's easy, though, because it's right before Revelation. So just go to the back of the Bible, and it's one book sooner. One book in front of Revelation. If you want to stand with me, I will read the word. Verses 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, In praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it was about 12 years ago now, and my wife, we weren't married yet, but my wife was on her way to Bethlehem. I was playing softball at Powderhorn Park with Jeff Noyad, and we heard that it happened. The 35W bridge collapsed. My wife was about to get onto that bridge. And you'll remember probably where you were when you first heard that it happened. Cars plummeting into the river below on the rocky shore. 13 people were killed. 145 were seriously injured. You'll remember looking on the TV and seeing flames and and something that looked like it was out of an apocalyptic movie. A terrible moment. Now the interstate highway bridge had been classified as structurally deficient. So they knew beforehand that the bridge needed work. It was fracture critical. Which meant that if one thing went wrong, the whole bridge would collapse. And yet, even with those warnings... They didn't do anything about it. And we had a catastrophe. Now this morning, Jude is also warning us of something. And it's foolish to avoid warnings, isn't it? It's foolish not to remember warnings. Something bad becomes disastrous when you don't heed a warning. 
But Jude is warning us this morning of so much, something so much more cataclysmic and awful than even a bridge collapse. He's warning us of false teaching and God's judgment. Jude is warning us. He's warning Jubilee this morning of God's judgment because of false teaching. And we are called this morning to heed this warning. The main point of this text is the only way to protect ourselves from false teaching is to keep ourselves in the love of God. I'll say that again. The main point of the sermon is the only way to protect ourselves from false teaching is to keep ourselves in the love of God. Well, let's dig into the text. First thing we see in verses 17 through 19 is that we are called to remember the apostles' warnings of false teachers coming into the church. Verse 17 says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Now look at the first two words of that verse, but you. Jude is contrasting the way the false teachers live, the way that most of the world lives, and says you are called to be different. But you must not be like them. But you must be holy. As believers, we are called to something different. Verse 17 says, remember the predictions of the apostles, which are basically summarized in verse 18. The apostles warned that there'd be scoffers and that these scoffers of Christianity, those who make fun of our faith, are essentially following their own ungodly desires. You have examples of this all over the New Testament. Paul, remember when he was talking to the Ephesian elders, says... I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There is danger here. Fierce wolves looking to destroy people in the church, not sparing the flock. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. That's what Jude is aiming to keep us from doing, to to depart from the faith. So this false teaching, the apostles say, will have an influence. There will be people who leave the church because of this teaching. It will have an effect by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Isn't that remarkable? The reason why there's such a power to false teaching, and oftentimes false teaching looks very similar to Christianity, but it's different in one key point. The reason it's so powerful is that it's demonic. It has a supranatural power behind it. It's Satan behind false teaching. So the apostles have warned us. 
They've warned us that false teachers are coming. Now, what are these false teachers like? What do they do? Well, in verse 18, it says they're scoffers. What does it mean to scoff? It means to pridefully reject something. It means to make fun of something because you think it's nonsense. Go to just about any university, stand up in class, and say you're an evangelical Christian, and you'll understand what scoffing is. I had multiple friends who walked with the Lord in high school. They, were, they appeared to be strong believers. They went to the University of Illinois. Their professors made them feel like idiots, and now they no longer walk with Jesus. This is a clear and present danger for the church they scoff but why why do they scoff are unbelievers just that much smarter we're just so stupid we actually believe that noah was a real person we actually believe that god created the world are we just stupid the bible says it's not an intellectual thing it's a heart thing scoffers following their own ungodly passions. The Bible is clear that our heads always follow our hearts. Scoffers scoff at Christianity because they hate it. They don't want to be subjected to God. They don't want the humility of saying that Christ had to die for my sin. And so they push it away. Our heads always follow our hearts. You see this in 2 Peter. Peter says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. You see it there again, a connection between scoffing truth and having evil desire. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were, as they were from the beginning. And then Peter says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of the world that then existed, it was deluged with water and perished. Peter is saying here that false teachers deliberately push out the judgment of God. They don't want that to be true. The world doesn't want that to be true. And so they deliberately overlook the truth of Christianity. Romans 1 says we suppress the truth. So don't mistake your faith as something that's stupid that your parents believe in. Understand that what you hear in class, what you hear on the news when people mock what you believe... It's not their head that's smarter. It's their heart that doesn't want to believe in the judgment of God. Our heads always follow our hearts. Now, we are discipled to do this all the time. We are always told to follow our own heart. That is the wisdom of this age. There are Disney songs that my daughters and I have to change so that we could still sing them, but they're more God-centered. So, in Aladdin, the prince, I can't remember his name. Oh no, Aladdin. (laughs) 
Aladdin says to Jasmine, tell me, princess, when did you last let your heart decide? So I've taught my daughters, whenever that comes up, to say, tell me, princess, when did you last let God decide? We're always being discipled to follow our own heart. How many times do we say, well, God told me to do this. God's telling me to do this. And yet you haven't pursued counsel. You haven't reflected on it biblically. You haven't prayed about it with other believers. We all fall into this false teaching. God told me to do this. It's all about our emotions, experiences, feelings. It's the cult of me. That's the religion that it's so dangerous for us to follow. And it seeps in more than you know. It seeps into this church. It seeps into my thinking. We have to be vigilant to not worship the cult of me. Verse 19 gives a further description of what these false teachers are like. It is these who cause divisions... Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Man, I don't want that to be true of me. I think Jude is clumping these three characteristics together because they all play off of one another. They all play. If you are not a person who's controlled by the Holy Spirit, you will be worldly. If you are a believer who's not continually filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be gripped and discipled by worldly thinking. There's no middle ground. It's not as if you can stop pursuing God and think like a Christian. Well, I already have theology class. No, we need to continually be filled with the Spirit, which empowers us not to be worldly. But when worldliness does creep in, guess what happens in the church? Division. The root of division in the church is worldliness. Because instead of submitting to the word of God and the principles of the word of God, we're submitting to our own doctrine of what we think is best. And so worldly thinking creates division. And we're following the false teachers when we do that. So examine your own heart. Where is your heart divided? against brothers and sisters in Christ. To that degree, it's exposing worldliness. It's exposing that you are not a person controlled and filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to how David Wells describes worldliness. He says, Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective. That's what's guiding it, is our fallen human perspective. Which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong. Great plausibility to what is morally wrong. How could you reject LGBTQ values? Who are you to say they shouldn't live that way? Why are you going to put your values on them? Great plausibility. For that reason, and they make what is wrong seem normal. 
That is the essence of worldliness, and it creeps into our thinking. Now, here's how you can know. Here's one test that I gave to myself to determine when am I operating in a worldly perspective. I think one of the greatest areas you can see that is how do you treat your sin? Do you care more about what other people think? That, uh, do you care more about what other people think than what your sin is doing to your relationship with God? So in other words, are you not confessing your sin because you're more afraid of someone rejecting you than you are your relationship with God being broken? That would be one sign of worldly thinking. Are you more troubled by the emotion of guilt and how it makes you feel so rotten than you are that you have broken your fellowship with God? Are are you sorry for sin but not repentant? It's easy to cloak our coziness with our sin by saying, oh, I struggle with this. And yet there's not a real repentant attitude under it. A confession of sin. We all allow worldliness to capture our hearts and minds. So how do we protect ourselves from this thinking? How do we protect ourselves from false teachers who are coming into the church? It's easy to think, look, I I went to Bible college... I've had systematic theology. I know what the right doctrine is. And yet Jude disagrees with you completely and says, I don't care if you've been a believer for 30 years and you've written commentaries. You need to beware. Because it's your heart that determines what you believe. And your heart is always in danger of being hardened against the truth of God. So how do we protect ourselves from false teachers from being discipled by the world. And we see in this passage is the only way to protect ourselves from false teaching is to keep ourselves in the love of God. The only way to protect ourselves from false teaching is to keep ourselves in the love of God. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, But you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life. Look at the first two words again, but you. Again, Jude is basically screaming to us now, but you must be different You must not be like the world. You are called to be holy. What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? Isn't that a troubling thing to read? Keep yourself in the love of God? I thought God's love was unconditional. I thought it was God's love that pursued me. I thought I was eternally secure. And now you're saying that I have to keep myself in God's love? Is his love fickle? Do I earn his love? This brings up a host of questions, doesn't it? 
what is Jude saying here? What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? Whenever you come to a passage in Scripture that's hard to interpret, one thing you can do is just skip over it and keep on reading. That's not a great way to deal with it. Another way is to look at other passages in Scripture that talk about the same thing and see if that sheds any light on what the author means here. So that's what we're going to do. You don't have to turn there, but John 15 talks all about abiding in the love of God. And so John will help us understand what it means to keep ourselves in God's love. You'll remember this is, this is where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. It's only through Jesus that we bear fruit. And then he says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Man, that is remarkable. Think about God, the Father's love for Jesus. That's how Jesus loves us. That's a remarkable love. And then Jesus says this, abide in my love. Keep yourself in my love. And then he explains what that means. What does it mean to abide in the love of Jesus? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's what it means to keep yourselves in the love of God, to abide in the love of God. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So God's love for Christians requires an appropriate response, namely perseverance in obedience. The way we keep ourselves in the love of God is perseverance in obedience. That still feels troubling, doesn't it? That feels troubling. Now it's on me to keep God loving me? What is Jude saying here? A key to understanding this is to look at the word keep. Look at the word keep in this book. The word keep is key in Jude. Look at verse 1. The author loves this word keep. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept, kept for Jesus Christ. Who's doing the keeping here? God. So the first thing we learn about keeping in Jude is that God is the one who does it. Verse 6, and angels who did not stay, that's the same Greek word as keep, it's just not translated that way. Angels who did not keep within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept, same word, in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So essentially, angels did not keep themselves in the love of God. They did not keep their position. So therefore, eye for an eye, God's going to keep them for judgment. It's a play on words. Look at verse 13. Wild waves of the sea. 
casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved, same Greek word, kept forever. So again, who is it who's doing the keeping? God. He's keeping them for judgment. Verse 21, we are then commanded to keep yourselves in the love of God. And then, probably the two most beautiful verses in all the Bible, 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Throughout the book, everything is dependent on the keeping of God. Jude 1 starts with the keeping of God. The very end of the book ends with the keeping of God. Which shows us that we, don't, we can't understand what it means to keep ourselves unless we understand and trust and have confidence in the fact that it's ultimately God who's keeping us. If you take that out of the equation, you will read this passage wrong. We don't earn God's favor. We don't earn God's love. We are his children. We prove that we are his children by keeping ourselves in his love, but our keeping is entirely dependent on his keeping. That's why Jude starts and ends the book with God's keeping, because he knew how we're wired. If he didn't put that in here, we'd all leave saying, shoot. God's keeping is ultimate. God's keeping sandwiches our keeping. So what does our keeping look like? How do we do this? How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? It, notice the Bible doesn't say, well, you know what? God keeps you anyway, so you don't really have to obey the command. No, we still are called to obey the command to keep ourselves in the love of God. So what does that look like? He gives three ways that we keep ourselves in the love of God. Look at verses 20 and 21. The main verb, the main exhortation is keep yourself in the love of God. And there's three participles that are modifying that main exhortation. In other words, keep yourselves in the love of God is the main exhortation. And then he gives three ways how we're supposed to do that. We keep ourselves in the love of God by first, growing our faith with biblical doctrine. Two, by praying in the Holy Spirit. And three, by looking forward to Jesus' return. That's how we obey the command to keep ourselves in the love of God. So let's look at the first. We keep ourselves in the love of God by growing our faith with biblical doctrine. Now, where do I get that from the text? Well, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. The author has already talked about the faith. And when he's talked about the faith, he isn't talking about Eric Shavesty's faith or Evan Volker's faith or my faith. He's talking about the body of doctrine that the church has handed down that must be believed. So the holy faith is biblical doctrine that has been given to the church. 
in verse 20, beloved, building yourselves up. What do you think about when you think about building? Well, you're building a building, right? You're building a house. Literally, in the Greek, it's building yourselves up by means of your most holy faith or on the foundation of your most holy faith. So we are building ourselves up and the foundation is the doctrine of the church. That's what this is saying. We keep ourselves in the love of God by growing our faith with biblical doctrine. Now, it's so easy to think, oh, great, doctrine, intellectual, academic. Great, another Bethlehem guy being all Bethlehem-y. The Bible doesn't talk about doctrine like it's, well, it's just intellectual. It's for smart people. The Bible talks about doctrine as something that feeds your faith. It enables you to relate to God. You grow in your knowledge of God. Can you imagine if I told Amy, you know what, I know you pretty well. We don't need to go on dates anymore. There's nothing more I need to know about you. I've learned you already. Or if I ever said, you know what, I don't want to tell that same story about my wife. I've already said it. People have heard it. No. It's by retelling stories, revisiting the truth about my wife that my affections are stirred up. And it's the same with doctrine. And yet we treat it differently. I've had systematic theology. I get it. He's omniscient. Our faith is like a stomach, not a computer. Our faith is like a stomach, not a computer. Now, a computer, if you want to download information, you just do it once, and it's there, and it, it's, you got it. No more need to do anything. Food is not like that. If I eat broccoli once, I can't say, you know what, I've already had broccoli. I don't need it anymore. I had it when I was three. So don't try to give that to me anymore. That would be foolish. And yet we do the same with doctrine and teaching. We say, I've heard that already. This is boring. We don't understand that that's food for our souls. That's how the Bible talks about it. So keep going to class. Keep learning from the Bible. Keep studying it together in MLGs. It's not just academic. It's your life according to Jude. So we keep ourselves in the love of God by growing our faith with biblical doctrine. We also keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit. We keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit. This means that we're stimulated, guided, and infused by the Holy Spirit when we pray. It means we're praying in harmony with the leading of the Holy Spirit. We're sensitive to how the Spirit is guiding us in prayer. That's why I love what happens at Monday night prayer at Russ's house. Is they, they open themselves up to the Spirit's leading as they pray together. That's what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. Rather than your own agenda. Now notice this is completely contrary to the false teachers the false teachers have said to, to have been devoid of the Spirit. Now we're told to pray in the Holy Spirit. Now there is a way to pray devoid of the Spirit. 
when you're always rushed, when it's just the cherry on top, when it's more rooted in what you want than what God wants, when it's unbridled by the word of God, that's not praying in the Holy Spirit. That's praying for what you want. A lot of people can pray, but we're called to pray in the Holy Spirit, which means we don't just tack it on. The Holy Spirit often doesn't rush with our schedule. He wants us to abide with him in prayer. So learning more about God, delighting more about God through biblical doctrine adds logs to the fire of our faith in Jesus. So just picture a fire, and that fire is our faith in Jesus. When we study doctrine, when we study the Bible, that's like putting more logs on the fire. Praying in the Holy Spirit is like adding gas to the fire. It keeps it hot. We need both doctrine and prayer to keep the fire going. Otherwise, it does become just academic, just learning facts. But the Holy Spirit causes those facts to explode in your heart. So go to Monday night prayer. Pray in your MLGs. Pray as couples. Pray as roommates. Give yourself to prayer. Pray in the Holy Spirit. The last way we keep ourselves in the love of God is by waiting for Jesus' return. You see that in the text? Keep yourselves in the love of God. How? By waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I recently heard someone say, I can do anything if I have something to look forward to. Isn't that true? I can do anything if I have something to look forward to at the end. So I'm kind of doing that right now. For the past two or three weeks, I have been so busy. THM, getting MLGs going, getting Jubilee Kids ready, preaching, teach. And, and I've been like, ah! But guess what? In a few weeks, I'm going to Florida. And my wife is going to Florida. And Dan and Lori Porch are going to Florida. And we're going to be on a beach. And that is helping me make it through these weeks. That's how God designs for us to persevere in this life. There is something coming. That if we meditate on it, it gives us the ability to persevere. Life is hard. Staying a Christian is really hard. And you will give up if you don't look to your eternal reward. The hope of heaven is our motivation. Now, I love this because of how it explains what that hope is. Does it say that we're waiting for Jesus to give us what we deserve? No, it says waiting for the mercy. When we see Jesus someday... He will give us mercy. We won't deserve eternal life at that moment any more than we deserved eternal life when we were hell-bent. And yet God will graciously, mercifully give us his kingdom. That is something to look forward to. That needs to capture our minds and hearts. And yet this is so hard to do. 
Here's one practical way to help you do that. There's a button on your phone that will help you wait for heaven. Do you, do you want to know what that button is? It's the power button. Press off. Because we're so addicted to our phones, we're so addicted to social media, we're so addicted to what's happening now. What about now? What about now? I haven't checked it in 40 minutes. Let me check now. I posted a video on Facebook a week or two ago. Um, it was about me getting rid of my piano. Did anyone see that? Yeah. So it was really interesting what was happening in my heart when I posted that video. So it was basically my neighbors and I pushing a piano, our piano, down our front steps because we didn't know how else to move it. And it was pretty funny. It was, it was enjoyable. But what I found is, after I posted it, I checked 10 minutes later. Okay, how many people saw this? Ooh, 10, okay. Wait a minute, only three liked it? What's up with that? And then I looked two hours later. Okay, now we're get, getting somewhere. There's one comment. I got, I got four likes now. And I was basically enslaved to this Facebook post for the next couple days. I kept looking back, and then I was like, there's 250 views, but like eight likes. This is awful. I felt rejected. I felt maligned. I felt like none of you really love me. But obviously, that's not true. But look at how social media and technology trains our heart to be all about now, 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 now. What do they think about my piano now? It was three minutes ago, and I didn't know what they thought about it then. How do they think about it now? And it also feeds into the cult of me. What do people think about me? Are they liking me? Are they liking my video? Oh, why didn't they like my video? What's wrong with me? It trains us to be me-centered, and it trains us to not meditate on the deeper realities of heaven and hell, the things that really matter. Now, if I ended here... In the sermon, it would be similar to a lot of American Christianity. And that's basically individualism. How am I going to keep myself in the love of God? How am I going to do this by myself? This is an exhortation to me. It's not. It's an exhortation to all of Jubilee as we are members of one another. No New Testament book is just for you. It's for you in the context of a body of believers. You can't obey scripture unless you're doing it as a member of a local church. You can't. It's not meant to be obeyed as an island. Philemon's the only book I could think of that was to one person in the New Testament. At least as far as the epistles go. They are written to churches, which is why we have our final two verses, verses 22 and 23. And here we see we must show mercy to others who are in spiritual trouble to protect them from God's judgment. We must show mercy to others who are in spiritual trouble to protect them from God's judgment. Verse 22 says, and have mercy on those who doubt. 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire, the fire of God's judgment. 
To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we are called to show mercy to others as we have been shown mercy. We are called to enable one another to keep ourselves in the love of God. This just isn't a sermon for you to do alone. This is a corporate calling for us to do it together. Throughout the book, we've seen that God has given us mercy, right? In verse 2, um, Jude says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. In verse 21, we're going to receive Jesus' mercy. We are very mercied people. We have received mercy. And the argument that Jude is giving here is that God's judgment is so terrible. You've read about it throughout the book. And his mercy is so wonderful. Our heart should incline toward mercy just like God's does. God's judgment is so terrible and his mercy is so wonderful. Our hearts should also incline toward mercy. Now, one of the main ways you know if you're truly born again or not is if you're a merciful person. If you are not a merciful person to that degree, you don't know your sin and you don't know the mercy of God. If you're all, always about law, 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 you have not tasted the mercy of God. Mercy breeds mercy. The mercy of God breeds mercy in our hearts. Verse 22 says, And have mercy on those who doubt. So these are people who hear false teaching. They hear teaching outside the church, and they are tempted to follow Doubt is a very real thing. When I was at Bible college, I went through really dark doubt about Christianity, reading about some of these philosophers and like, whoa, never heard that before. That's scary. We all struggle with doubt at times. And we are called to come alongside such a brother or sister and have mercy on them. Not say, how can you doubt the gospel? You grew up in a Christian home. I can't believe you. No, we have mercy on those who doubt. Doubt plagues all of us. But doubt does need to be handled with care. Doubt can begin to creep in and take over our life if we don't handle it with care. If we run away from the body of Christ, if we want to run away from truth and community, doubt will overtake us. And that's why we have the church. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Some were becoming so persuaded by the false teachers that they were in imminent danger of condemnation. Snatching them out of the fire, meaning they were close to the fire of God's judgment. Now, when it's talking about having mercy on those who doubt, snatching others out of the fire... Is this talking about believers or, or unbelievers? I would say yes. It's talking about both. It's talking about those who are, who are in the church, who are, who are on the fringe, they're struggling. And it's talking about unbelievers. We need to remember that people's souls are at stake and life is short. We're not saving them out of something uncomfortable We're saving them from the wrath of God. Verse 23. To others show mercy with fear, 
hating even the garment stained by the flesh. At this point, people are caught up in immorality. So they've heard the false teaching. They've begun to buy into it. And actions always follow. And so their garment is stained by the flesh, which means they've been walking in sin. This is why we have member meetings at Jubilee. Because sometimes members continue to walk in significant sin without submission to the elders and the members of the church. And what we're trying to do is this very thing. We're trying to snatch them from the fire. Now, when we do this, we need to do this with fear. What does that mean? It means that we need to recognize that we're all tempted by sin. We can't pursue others who are straying in the pride of thinking, oh, that could never happen to me. We must keep our guard up, or we too might be tempted. It's interesting, lack of fear is one of the main characteristics of the false teachers. Look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, and they feast with you without fear. The fear of God is so crucial in Scripture. If you don't get the fear of God, you don't get what it means to know Him. John Murray says, the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness, a holy reverence and awe of God. And that's why we hate even the garment stained by the flesh. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. We love the sinner, we hate the sin. Yes, it sounds cliche, but it is biblical. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that mercy means to be soft on sin. Sometimes we feel that way. Well, I want to be merciful, therefore I'm not going to call out someone's sin. That's like me. I was in Colorado a couple weeks ago hiking on these beautiful cliffs and there's these beautiful vistas and a couple of times when I looked over the edge it was like, whoa, if I step one step this way I'm dead forever. Now, if I saw one of my friends unknowingly starting to go this way would I, would I kind of say, you know what, Andy, you don't have to do this, but I just, you know, maybe, maybe step sideways. You could still step backwards. That's fine. Would that be merciful? No. He would die. So mercy doesn't mean being soft on sin. Mercy does what's necessary to keep our brothers and sisters in the faith. The only way to protect ourselves from false teaching is to keep ourselves in the love of God and to help others do the same. We don't earn this love. It's freely given to us. It's ultimately God who's keeping us in that love. But the way we show we've experienced that love is by doing these very things. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that our keeping is entirely dependent on your keeping. So, Father, we look to you now and plead as a church that you would keep us in the faith. 
Father, that we would not become slack on sin in our hearts. Lord, that we would not think we are beyond the danger of false teaching, but that together in love we would build one another up, that we'd pray in the Holy Spirit. And Lord, would you turn our minds away from the tyranny of the urgent that we might think on you, that we might remember that Christ is coming back. So give us an eternal perspective, I pray in Jesus' name.